and, and just because we can be skeptical about about that that narrative of oh you must you know you must have meaningful work and everyone has the right to have um, work that is necessarily meaningful to them at all times even though we can put a bit of skeptical pressure on on that idea and see where it comes from in terms of you know, parenting nonetheless I think it would be sad to to let go of that idea completely good morning good day good day Good afternoon, good evening, or even good night. I don't know where or when you are listening to this episode of False Summits, but really happy to have you here for another episode. Welcome back to those of us who have been tuning in for a bit now, and if you're new to the podcast, really happy to have you here as well. My name's Daniel Mosterback. So just for a bit of a background story, this project began when I was reflecting on how sometimes I felt a sense of being overwhelmed by possibilities or confused in how to make decisions both in my career and education and just I guess some life decisions and so having that sense of uncertainty and how to keep discovering and experimenting with what really mattered to me focusing on my work as well after having some mentoring conversations both with mentors to me and also uh, being a mentor myself to people younger than myself uh, both in education and uh, other opportunities so I'm a teacher but I'm also a writer and kind of an explorer and I chart different conversations here on this podcast, bring them together. It's all about sharing stories and strategies about continually growing and making meaningful decisions. So find those that have inspired me that have made some sense of a value-driven career. So thinking about what really matters to them and making those decisions, whether that be in career, whether it be in other aspects of their life as well, travel, education, and so on. So I actually realized this sense of being confused, overwhelmed, all the rest of it, it's actually rather a common experience after some conversations with friends and students as well. So happy to have all of us here today to join the conversation and let's get into it. Welcome to our next episode of the Thor Summits podcast. And today we're joined by Dr. Bridget Vincent, who's an assistant professor of modern and contemporary poetry at the University of Nottingham. Bridget completed her PhD in literature at Cambridge University as a John Monash scholar and she teaches on modern and contemporary writing, emphasizing British and Irish literature. Her research focuses on how literary works participate in social reparation and public apology, and she's also working on a project about the way depictions of ruins in the 20th century help us to come to grips with ecological crises and possible ruins in the 21st century. Bridget founded the Australian Youth Humanities Forum, aimed at furthering public dialogue about the humanities and widening the prospects of a career in the humanities. We're here today to discuss the importance of transferable skills, which are often the core of a humanities education, and how we could use these to find a sense of guidance and direction in a job market of fluidity and possibility as well. So really happy to have you here, Bridget. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Daniel. It's lovely to be here. Fantastic. I think we'll jump in with a question a little bit about values and how you might have got to where you were today. So if you could transport me back to when you were a child, did you have any idea that you'd end up where you are now? Or do you think your career has had a lot of flexibility up until this point? Mm, um, that's a really, that's quite a fun question for me because um, I think sometimes people have very erudite reasons for choosing their particular area of study. I think in some ways um, my my career kind of came out of, passions and obsessions that I have indeed had since I was a little kid. Um, mm. it, I I think 
when I was, yeah, when I was a child, I, I had that kind of idealistic desire to do something to quote unquote change the world. But mm-hmm. I was mostly interested in writing and uh, reading about writers. And so it turned out that when it came to uh, do my PhD, I ended up writing on what writers think about changing the world. So there's, <laughs> there's a kind of um, a naivety to um, how I how I got into my my research area. But I don't know. Naivety is one way to one way to describe it. I think another way is is yeah, values based. So um, I think in that way, I'm very very lucky to think about questions that I am obsessed with for my job. Yeah, and and almost at some point maybe we would think that if you study people that explore those questions that you're not necessarily engaged in it, but you are engaging in a spreading of those values at the same time, not necessarily just in isolation being a scholar. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this has sort of been the question that I've grappled with through my throughout my life. And um, yeah, as an Australian going to many barbecues with many distant relatives who say, poetry, oh, <laughs> what's the good of that then? Sometimes. Yes, yes. Dal at the end, um, and uh, so I, yeah, I've gotten quite good at kind of answering the barbecue question, but yeah, yeah. but nonetheless, I I do um, I do still think and worry a little bit about oh you know should I have gone down that other track of trying to do something a little bit more um, clearly socially useful and mm-hmm. the. I think about this kind of whenever whenever I have anything to do with uh, the the community of uh, people who had the same funding for their postgraduate study as me, mm. the scholars, and I'm always in a room with people who are doing incredible hands-on things like their engineers and their doctors and their eye surgeons and their salinity experts. And, um, and I always think, oh, you know, how do I fit in here? But... Yeah. There's a double-edged sword to that in that I I really do think that not just engaging in humanistic study but promoting it more broadly is something that's inherently kind of socially useful and having having that conversation with yourself and with other people um, I think is is part of that utility actually, just helping to refine the vocabulary that we use around justifications for the humanities. So mm-hmm. I tell myself anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I tell myself similar things. I think the humanities has uh, this unearned reputation a little bit, and I'm not entirely sure what its source is, why why people think that it's not, not a social good or, or that it's not as yeah, useful, practical as some of the careers that you outlined. Would you have any idea why that's the case? Yeah, I think that's a really, really interesting question. And I think it's one that's useful to approach from a kind of comparative national perspective. So um, I don't know whether I have a bit of the Australian disease of romanticising France. I think I possibly do. <laughs> but even even with that in mind, um, I don't think that you have the same kind of questions and the same kind of problems at French barbecues um, to mm. quite the same extent. Or when, when, you know, when you think about sort of the way that, say, um, some – European research funding bodies work. They have separate streams for the humanities. Like in England where I'm working at the moment, um, you know, there is an arts and humanities 
Research Funding Council that is separate from the sciences um, mm -hmm. body, unlike in Australia where it's all funded through the ARC. And I think that's that's a small detail, but it's kind of very telling. So that is all just to say that when you think about this question, it's useful to think about the specific historical and geographical pressures that mm. shape the answer because you have a different question in Australia um, from the question that you would pose in England, mm. the way that that would be phrased in, say, um, France or Germany or India or Mexico or China. So um, I think from an Australian perspective, I think there's a particularly Australian form of, if not anti-intellectualism, a kind of instrumentalism in the way that value gets talked about. Um, Sorry, so what do you mean by in, uh, instrumentalism? Yeah, so thinking about thinking about um, the thinking about value from the perspective of uh, end well, goals and. Sure. And changes. So, as thinking about the value of something as an instrument for something else, rather than having value in and of itself. So, mm -hmm. we in you know in Australia there is a lot of talk about value in terms of, um, you know, in terms of things like what can we extract from the ground and do with it. It's a very it's a very mm -hmm. sort of instrumental way of talking about say you know the yes. environment. Um, and so some of that some of that same kind of instrumentalism happens when we in you know. Um, public debates about the use of the use of the humanities it's fascinating to think though that at, at one point if you grow up in australia for example you might not realize that that's not all there is in terms of how how things are perceived how your passions might be perceived uh, and that yeah it's good to have that broadened perspective yeah yeah because i mean even if i don't want to be too sort of specific about about the the causes for the particular modes of disrespect that the, that the humanities receive in Australia, I think you can definitely see it, as you say, from from that kind of international perspective, and it really pops. So, it, like, it kind of blew mm. my mind when I first came to England and I saw that a lot of the people who had very hands-on um, public service-type jobs were people who had degrees in English and philosophy and history, um, oh. and it was super normal to go and become a, you know, some kind of monetary advisor uh, in Whitehall without having a commerce degree, um, if with with a with a philosophy degree or an English degree, and it's part. So so it manifests itself in in the structure of degrees. Like you know how in Australia you do, uh, if you if you want to have some kind of career with a very uh, specifically laid out path, you need to do a certain um, course for that. So I'm thinking here, you know, of law, say. Mm -hmm. Whereas, so yeah, whereas in England, a lot of really, really good sort of humanities-oriented undergrads will do an English degree or a history degree and then perhaps do some kind of law conversion course. Similarly in the sciences, um, there's – there's more of a sense that it's okay to be a generalist and then get some kind of specialised, more vocational um, qualification, whereas in Australia there's that real sense of, you know, you choose that you're going to become a physio when you're 18 and that's yeah, yeah. Um, And so <laughs> you see that in, in, in the way that degrees 
uh, get organized and also the way that re- the research funding gets organized. Yeah, that's so fascinating because um, in my experience, I've done the Melbourne model, you know, so I did the undergraduate degree that was more general and then doing a specialist degree afterwards, but it's a little bit of the exception, not the rule. But when you go through that, they talk so much about the value of the humanities as as being transferable. Okay, so now I can apply so many of these lessons, learn so many of these skills in that next field as well. Yeah, well, that, see, I, that's, re- that's really encouraging um, that you're having that kind of self-reflexive discussion, you know, with yourself as you're engaging in this kind of multidisciplinary humanities study. That's, that's mm-hmm. really terrific, I think. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that the Melbourne model has a lot to offer in terms of training people in different sets of disciplines and thinking about how they might work together. Um, so it's a, it's a really, I think it's a welcome addition to uh, the options for students. And I think when we talk about transferable skills, sometimes it could go over your head because you hear it a lot of times, but let's um, think for a moment, what are they when we're talking about the humanities and what are the humanities disciplines? Off the top of my head, for the disciplines, I'd say international studies, archaeology, history, and it's so broad, but yet there are so many skills that come out of that. So could you just speak for a moment on what some of those skills are that, that we gain from a humanities education? Yeah, absolutely. So and I think that there are some that cut across different humanities disciplines and then there are some that are that are specific to the individual discipline. But I think overall they would be um, under the umbrella of critical thinking. So the ability to analyse information think about the context that it's coming from, not take it at face value, reflect on the kinds of assumptions that are behind the information, pull Mm -hmm. it apart, put it back together in another form. Um, So I think a kind of scepticism that that comes from a knowledge of how any piece of rhetoric might be put together. So people talk a lot about critical thinking and it means a lot of things in different contexts, but in terms of humanistic study, it does boil down to to a sense of curious, open-minded skepticism that's that's rooted in a sense of the analysis often of language and that can be language of all kinds like whether that's you know verbal language or say the language of of painting or the language of media representation or the language of architecture and then mm. there's yeah there's there's writing clear persuasive elegant arguments really really important transferable skill um and in order to do that as well uh, research skills. So, and that and that's particularly important now. I mean, even so, even in the time between that's that's passed between my undergrad and the undergrads that I'm, I'm teaching now, the definition of research skills has changed, and and research in some ways has the the ability to to research. I think that you learn in a humanities degree the importance and transferability of that has only gotten um, more important I think because um, there's so much there's so much information now I mean it's such a truism that there is so much information but 
but there is so yeah. much yeah there's so much information whose provenance and value we have to be very active in assessing i don't think we've ever obviously we're also awash in information but at the same time we are awash in information whose status is slippery and tricky and has to be determined we don't have to just read anymore we have to work out whether we trust what we read in a way that I just don't think was quite the same um it was it just wasn't quite the case even you know 15 years ago and that's sort of to do with obviously the internet fake news mm. yeah for sure <laughs> and and when I say you know also just I'd add to that 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 critical thinking um I think there's a there's a sort of utopian version of that but I think it's one that I'd probably stand behind in terms of thinking about its potential ideally a humanities graduate is someone who thinks critically about the society that they operate in and I I don't know that that's always the case and I don't sort of have any illusions Mm. about that necessarily being produced in every student but I do think that there's that potential and I just remember that from coming to uni and and I remember having my mind blown by various sort of first-year literature and politics lectures and realising that, you know, having having the kind of curtain be pulled back on all sorts of systems that I didn't even see in the past mm. and having a sense of sort of vertigo of, um, you know, excited uh, skepticism, I guess, of, of in that in that first year, and and that I don't think that happens to everyone in the same degree. And I think now we're too busy, you know, we're, we're very busy working all our part time jobs. I was pretty busy myself, but it was I think it's even worse now. And mm. you're on a long commute, you know, you can't have the same kind of sunlit epiphanies while you're reading under a tree in quite the same okay. way. But it's funny you say the word exciting as well because there is there is something about that of like wanting to face problems at least speaking for myself when we talk about the humanities and saying these skills are so important to be able to analyze problems and solve problems or even even and that's and that's that could be in a career in a vocational sense but also we could think about the humanities in the sense of is is it all about the job and and even if it's a great job because you're in some kind of flexible job but you could also be studying something in the humanities because you're going to have some kind of social impact or some kind of value to the community outside of your job. And that's something to consider as well. Mm, absolutely. I think that's so important, especially now. I mean, especially right now where everything is so hard for so many people in terms of job prospects and Things are changing under our feet at the moment, particularly, you know, anyone who's working in the gig economy, um, you know, this. Uh, there's so much instability in terms of jobs that thinking about our overall kind of contribution necessarily has to be um, a thought that's about what we do in our jobs and and what we do beyond them because yeah our our jobs we we just have a lot have a lot less choice now and a lot less mm-hmm. freedom to i use this word a bit reservedly but self actualize in our work in the way that you know might have been possible for some people in the past um so yeah what you do outside of your job i think you're absolutely right is where you might put those skills to their most fruitful use yeah sure could you go into a bit more detail for a moment on what you mean by self-actualize for those of us that might not be familiar? 
Yeah, I, I, and I say, I, I, I say that a little reservedly because it, it does make me sound a bit like a yoga doing bro. Um, yeah. But um, <laughs> I think make sort of make the most of your potential in a way that um, fulfills what that means to you in a way that mm. feels meaningful to you and to the people around you. Mm. I love that. I love that. I think it's um yeah something that you yeah, you could say reservedly at first because it's yeah it could sound kind of lofty, but really I think that's what everyone wants in some way and we we are in a position at least in um, western democratic societies where we have more opportunity to explore those things to have our career include those elements for self exploration. But yeah, I don't think it's something to be Ah, again, I, I use this word reservedly, but <laughs> ashamed of is like, uh, something that I've thought about in the past. Yeah. No, I mean it's a it, it is a really interesting question, isn't it? And and I think regardless of sort of where you find where you think about this in in the world and and where you think about this in terms of um, political organisation, but um, we yeah that that question of of whether we have the we have the or, or, or rather where our sense of having the right to meaningful work comes from because that of course has a has its own you know story and system behind it this sense that our our work can be a kind of um place of of fulfillment and actualization and in some ways i think that's you know that's a dream that's worth holding on to and finding some some way towards um but at the same time it's a useful it's useful to remember that that is itself a kind of product of, of rhetoric, particularly for millennials. There's been a lot of talk about how, you know, the need to fulfil your potential and find a job that yeah. is exactly to you, um, how, how, you know, that, that's that feeling or that the inheritance of that idea is something that millennials experience in ways that people in, you know, previous generations didn't didn't have in in quite the same way in that it's often experienced as a kind of pressure you know you need to kind of find yourself because we all need to find ourselves because you've been training for this since you were four but um but and just because we can be skeptical about about that that narrative of oh you must you know you must have meaningful work and everyone has the right to have um work that is necessarily meaningful to them at all times even though we can put a bit of sceptical pressure on, on that idea and see where it comes from in terms of you know, parenting. Um, nonetheless, I think it would be sad to, to let go of that idea completely, which is why I think things like your project are really valuable because even if wherever you find yourself in terms of your career and your opportunities, you can still you know, be trying to find that as that level of, of, of meaning, um, even if that's not something that you feel you can fulfill completely. And I think that's where things like your podcast and these kinds of conversations become really useful, that even if you think, okay, well, I am stuck in a job that I, I don't feel all that fulfilled by, is there some element within that that – provides an opportunity for me to live my values. Do I absolutely have to quit accountant or, you know, could I, could I work in um, some, some branch of the firm where I get to sort of be, be more myself or do, do you see what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I love that. It's um, 
because we could romanticize that and being a millennial myself so totally i can relate to what you're saying <laughs> this idea of yeah when you're younger that that there is some singular career you know that's that's in the far far future or near future even yeah that will fulfill all values and i think that that's unrealistic like in so many different expectations in life if we expect meaning to be in the future in a certain form that's yeah unrealistic and we close ourselves to surprises that could be or opportunities, creative possibilities. Like you said, if I'm in this particular job, maybe there is a way that I could use a certain value, like let's say it's courage or creativity or um, like a sense of wanting to have an impact uh, on a certain part of the business. Yeah, you can incorporate all those things. Yeah, yeah. I think that's 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 where the, the values aspect of, of your enterprise, I think, is so important because it reminds me a little bit of, this is going to sound cheesy, but, I think it will explain what I'm trying yeah. to say. I went to this negotiation workshop when I was about 16 and I was trying okay. to get skills of all kinds and I thought negotiation, yeah. that's got to be, that's going to equip me for adulthood, a bit like getting a driving licence, which I still haven't got. But um, I, <laughs> I thought, yeah, negotiation, I'm going to need that when I'm a big player, when I'm a grown-up. Yeah, yeah. But it was, it was actually a really smart workshop and it was really cool yeah. in that, it forced us to, to think about listening to what the other person seems to uh, want underneath their request rather than the specificities of the request itself and then think, well, what is a way that you can fulfil what that person wants underneath? In a, What's a way that you can do that um, that will also work for you so you don't necessarily have to fulfill the specificities of the request but you have to fulfill the underlying need and that that really spoke to me um because i think that that way of thinking is is applicable in the way that you're talking about values in that you if you think about the underlying forces and the underlying um elements if you're thinking in a more kind of elemental way then you're thinking about how to fulfill those values rather than thinking about the kind of specificities of what that would look like in any particular job or city or context or mm. task because there are, you know, so many ways to fulfill all those values and to look at the underlying drive I think is really um, productive and, and powerful. Yeah, for sure. And I imagine that as you start to, explore that more you see the truth of it more and more and there's multiple values not necessarily even one value that you know must be must be actualized like you said <laughs> i think this is a great time to bring in some advice that i heard you give about um maybe it's not necessarily from you yourself but about uh ways to navigate a, a career and and open up different opportunities were you talking once about different keys that could open up your own door perhaps yeah well this is um this is a really nice kind of looping back, I think, because I love the fact that what has brought us together for this conversation is a project um, that I started called the National, um, the Australian Youth Humanities Forum, and this is for um, to encourage young people to think about careers in the humanities and the value of the humanities more broadly. And I based that on an experience um, of attending the National Youth Science Forum, where I kind of discovered that, no, I wasn't going to be an engineer, but I did love thinking about the kind of intellectual 
possibilities and I wanted the same opportunities to be there for little humanists. And, mm-hmm. um, and it's, it's really terrific that, you know, you were a mentor on that program. So the point of this though, is that when I was on the National Youth Science Forum, um, we had this really encouraging, very, yeah, inspirational talk by the person who founded the um, National Youth Science Forum, um, Rodney Jory, who's a physicist, and he talked a little bit about the way you think about your career, and this was such nice advice, I thought, in that he said that you you might think about your career as involving um, a particular door that you need a particular key to get through. Say if you want to be a dentist, you know that in order to open the door to dentistry, you're going to need a key that's marked undergraduate degree in dentistry, etc. You might need another key that's marked postgraduate training, etc. And then eventually you can open that specific door. And the same is true for um, for certain other careers, like um, say you are going to be a tree surgeon. You need to be good with ropes and you need to be good at identifying trees and you need to not be clumsy with a chainsaw and all of those are very specific um, skills and keys. Whereas if you're someone who isn't quite sure what door they want to walk through, the best thing to do is simply collect a lot of different keys. And so that might be a bit of training in one particular area. That might be a bit of experience uh, in, in another workplace. That might be a particular skill and passion that you cultivate to um, the highest level you can with the opportunities that you have at the time. It might be um, political engagement and um some kind of community activity. If you do everything that kind of speaks to you and thinks makes and, and, and you think makes sense for where you are in the world and the change that you want to see at the time, then eventually you're going to have all these keys and if you put them together, you might end up, and this is where we all went, oh, um, yeah. making your own door. And I kind of love that idea and that metaphor has kind of stuck with me. Um ever since and I think it's I just think that's really nice advice for young people so if if people at all stages are thinking about you know structures of careers um I think it's a nice metaphor mm. it makes me think at first of the uh, that scene in the matrix whether with the key maker and the uh, all the doors as well if anyone's oh, seen yeah. that <laughs> um yeah but you touched on something there about one of my first questions about this great idea is how to navigate let's say is there some kind of how to find some kind of guidance because at first while I'm so inspired I could also think well how do I know which keys and we could say it's okay it's based on my my passions and interests but a worry that someone could have is that they'll eventually they'll just continue to collect keys and and they're not what if they don't find that door that they could open what if they just have heaps of different skills or interests but I think eventually don't think that would be the case because like you said it's for what you see makes sense at the time so you're doing your best to research what might be a good fit or where you might want to have an impact and that's all you can do in a sense is research as well as you can and then at a certain point take a leap learn some new things and and then see what what manifests yeah yeah absolutely and I think another 
um, another bit of advice that doesn't come from my own experience, but from that of many of my really dear friends, um, is to when when you're having a kind of career change, you don't necessarily have to work out what your new career will be and what your what your dream career actually is kind of in advance but that every everything that you have a little go of is one kind of iteration that teaches you more about what you want eventually um so i have again this is down to the particular australian um context but uh half my friends did law or more than half my friends did law and some of them um, ended up uh, becoming lawyers of various kinds, but a lot of them sort of got to about twenty-seven and decided that they they didn't they didn't want to be practicing law in the way that they were um, in their careers, even if their careers were um, wildly successful looking on paper. They'd you know they'd they'd quote unquote made it, um, but they just didn't want to be doing that. And um, so a lot of them sort of were thinking, okay, well what what is it that I do want? And I had all these, you know, soul searching wine conversations with my with my best friends when we were about twenty eight. Yeah. You know, what what like well what now? And um and I and one of them said something really wise, which was that, you know, she was just gonna sort of try work in this particular policy field and see what that was like, rather than thinking, you know, that it's like some kind of arranged marriage that, you know, whatever she tries next is going to be the next, the one career. And, yeah. and yeah, so that, that sense of sort of iteration, I think is, is really important, particularly when you're moving from an area that does have a very um, laid out path to one mm -hmm. that, that perhaps is not so clear. And this, you know, this is the same for, um, for people who work in certain arts fields as well. Like if, so my sister is a former um, very elite ballet dancer and when, you know, you have to stop doing ballet at some point because of your body, um, yeah. people that's, you know, 25 and some people that's 35 or 40, but you, you need to find something else. And she was having that same kind of feeling of, of well, how do you replicate the the kind of path that you're on with ballet? And I, I can, I feel like in some ways I have no credibility in this particular part of the conversation because academia is a lot like that, where you, you know, you have to do a whole lot of things that are quite set, or you have no chance of getting anywhere. And even if you do all mm -hmm. those things, there is still a very good chance that you're not going to be able to work as a lecturer. And um, I. So far, you know, touch wood, haven't had to uh, try to do something else um, and I feel extremely lucky to, to be able to do what I'm doing. Um, but, I, yeah, I don't, I myself don't know what it's like to kind of step off that treadmill and go, okay, mm. what is it that I, that I do want? But um, those friends who have been having that sort of second career after a very laid out path, have found that, you know, that idea of just practicing and learning more with each sort of job to be really, really important and helpful. Yeah, it is, isn't it? And I love that it's, it's the exploration with your friends as well. It's, you're all in the same boat to some degree. Yeah. Mm, it's very mm. important. We're all still sort of working it out, you know, and yeah. Anyway. 
Would you have anything to add about the Humanities Forum, the, your passion for creating that in the first place? Was it to replicate the National Youth Science Forum? Yeah, um, yeah, c- kind of. Yes and yes and no, in that it, it was to an extent, but it was also sort of um, other, there, was, there were other uh, ideas in play. Basically, um, it came about partly through another kind of barbecue conversation where everyone said, oh, you mustn't waste yeah. your, your VCE, you better do law then. Um, and I wouldn't have been a very good lawyer. Um, and I had a sense that if you get a quote-unquote good VCE score, you you should go off and, you know, do law if you're a humanities type and you should go off and do medicine if you're a science type. And there's there's a real mm. pressure from that growing up in, in Australia. And I, I was so over explaining to people that I was doing just arts because there was this, you know, it was practically <laughs> yeah. like a degree called just arts. And um, I, I, I felt that this was a really unfortunate and narrow way of thinking. And I wanted humanity students to have a sense of the potential of their degree, not just from a sort of specifically vocational perspective, even though that's really true. You know, you can do all kinds of things uh, with an arts degree, as every brochure will tell you. Um, mm. But but more than that, I, I wanted humanities students to have an opportunity to think together really self-reflexively about what it is they're doing and the potential that that has from the perspective of collective kind of social transformation. It's, it's very kind of utopian rhetoric, but I really, I really think that thinking about the social potential of the humanities as a shared project is something that art students need to be doing and people and people need to understand that that is something you can do when you Mm. study arts and it's one of the the values of studying arts that you have to kind of make up your justification for it as you go along and that in itself is a productively unstable destabilizing experience and you know that that's a kind of vertigo that is that is thrilling and desirable um and it's an, an antidote to the you must do law rhetoric. So that's kind of the that's the utopian side of things. But but I also just sure. want students to to see that if you are thinking about, okay, well, um, you know, how am I gonna pay the rent in ten mm-hmm. um and oh and now also how am I gonna pay pay back my hex, um, or whatever it's called now. Um yeah, my loan. Um, it, you know, that that we we you know we need to be thinking about practical sort of pathways, and those utopian and practical conversations don't need to be in opposition. That you can mm. thinking really creatively and in, as you say, a really values based way about what you want to do with your life by thinking about the concrete models that other people have set in their kind of humanities-based careers. So I really Mm. want people to see the kinds of paths that you can take with a humanities degree 
in real life by bringing in individual um, people who were perhaps at early stages of really interesting careers to talk about how they got to where they got to and the kinds of um, decisions that they made and the ways that their, that, that their study sort of affects their uh, current kind of workplace experience. Mm. Um, cause I, I, I do think that, you know, cheesy phrase that you have to see it to be it is, is kind of true though. Like to see those, yeah. have those models and see, you know, what it means to be a curator at the immigration museum and what it means to, um, set up a foundation that, uh, works with refugees and English, uh, skills say what, mm what that what that actually looks like in terms of concrete steps just just to see how it's possible and just to see that it is possible yeah it is so important and um, even from yeah, from when i went i was in this middle ground between i had the students below me who are coming to learn for the first time about some of those options and then sort of above me those who are already more established in some kind of career but it could be super flexible i, I remember one person who worked in the government managing water resources, but they had a degree in anthropology, which helped them understand how people thought about communal resources. And it's like, okay, I didn't think you could do that. Yeah, it's really fascinating. It's really great that, that you were able to do that and that that, I think, experience exists for people as well. So mm. that's terrific. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for like setting it up in the first place. And um, looking forward to carrying some of these conversations forward Yeah, beyond, beyond this particular episode. Yeah, well, it's, it's, as I say, it's, I could talk about this stuff forever. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> I'm kind of obsessed with it. So it's really, really great that it kind of connects with what you're doing, which I think is such a, it's a really creative and I think important kind of smart intervention. So, so yeah, I look forward to sort of seeing, um, you know, what, what you do with this and, and who the other guests are and, yeah, how those conversations might kind of add together. Well, thank you so much for becoming a part of the conversation then, and we'll definitely stay in touch. Thanks, Bridget. Such a pleasure. Thank you for joining me there for another episode of the False Summits podcast. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about the project and what it's about, you can head over to the website at falsesummits.org. There is an archive of a few different episodes there as well and some other resources, so be sure to check that out. If something spoke to you in that episode, consider sharing it or leaving a review on iTunes. The link is in the description. And of course, a big thank you to you, the listener, for tuning in for this episode and being part of the conversation, which is fantastic. I really wish you all the best for reflecting on your own journey and decision making. False Summits partly owes its existence to Claire Fogarty and Michael Zamponia, two stalwart creatives and longtime friends. A huge thank you to Claire for her music production and to Michael for the uplifting design that you see before you on your screen. All right, everyone, that's it from me for today for this episode. I'll see you next time. Take care.